It's all about Australia's favourite obsession, property. G'day, my name is Jeremy Cowan, and I'm the host of this podcast, Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. See, everybody loves property. We buy it, we sell it, we feel it every minute of every day, at work and even when we play. See, we just can't get away from it. Everybody has a connection to property, as a tenant, or a homeowner, or even as a landlord, and hence our obsession with it. Now, I promised you on this podcast that you would get to hear some interesting and inspiring stories about property, but from people that maybe you wouldn't expect, and in ways you might not have thought about. And today's episode is another ripper, as I've got a guest who has the most amazing story to tell. See, it's one of those stories you just couldn't make up. In fact, it's really not one story, but rather a collection of stories that are based around an airport, Gander Airport. Ever heard of it? Well, you should have, since it was once the world's busiest airport. See, before the technological advancements of the modern jet plane, every passenger that flew the transatlantic route had to pass through Gander. Gander Airport has the strategic locational advantage of being located on the easternmost tip of Canada, and it was a necessary refuelling stop. Location, location, location. It was described by some as the biggest gamble ever taken in aviation history, to build one of the largest airports in the world, to prepare for a war that hadn't started, and promote transatlantic air travel for land-based aircraft that didn't exist. The story of Gander Airport is historically a very, very important one. And as property investors, we can learn a lot from this one. It's a great example of the locational advantage that a piece of land can have over another, and how this strategic locational advantage interacts with our five drivers. How the development of infrastructure can transform a wilderness wonderland into the world's busiest airport. How aviation technology drove a boom of military and passenger numbers and this same urge for technological advancement led to the invention of the modern jet that can fly higher, faster and further and ultimately resulted in the demise of the importance of Gander. It's about how an aviation boom culminates in a population explosion and later leading to diverse and a multicultural society. It's about how the British government retook control of an independent country to dominate aviation. And about how a government can grant airport officials the right to operate a civilian airport, only to confiscate that right back for a war effort and then return it in peaceful times. We talk about location, 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 and Gander Airport has this in spades. First for military purposes, and then the glory days of the 1950s air travel. It's the only airport that I know that had a town grow out of the airport and not an airport grow out of the town. Now, when you listen to this episode, just keep thinking our five drivers, technology, infrastructure, population, government-granted licenses and credit. This is such an interesting discussion, this one, and there was so much material that I got that I'm actually going to release a bonus episode next week about Gander, the world's most important airport. So today, here to tell this incredible story is retired air traffic controller and Gander airport historian, Jack Pinson. Jack, welcome to Property Australia's favourite obsession. Thank you. Now, Jack, Gander has had a significant role to play in aviation history. 
And it's very much a story about our property drivers as we see them, technology, infrastructure, population, government-granted licences and credit. But I want to kick this off by asking you first, what is it that you love so much about flying? Well, I grew up in a, I grew up in, a, in an aviation town. I actually grew up on an airport uh, because uh, as soon as the war was over and aviation took hold, people just started flocking in, families started flocking in because they needed support staff for, for, the, uh, for the airport itself. And so they converted the, um, they converted the military buildings into, uh, into apartments and churches and stores and things like that. So we lived actually on the airport for, well, until I was 14 years old. I mean, uh, so I, that's how I got involved with aviation. Aviation was part of our life. Like, like, like we go playing ball, uh, we play baseball in the summertime. And we'd have to, to watch, be careful of, uh, uh, of the what runway was in use because if you didn't, you get you get prop washed from the airplanes that were taken out. Like I mean, that's how close we <laughs> live to the airport. You know, so, that's unbelievable, so, really. So isn't now, it? so that's how it gets in your blood. So I think, like when I finished high school, I I went right into air traffic control. Like I left, I and I always tell the story, and people shake their heads and can't believe it. But I finished my last exam. On Friday morning at noon, and I went to work at one o'clock with air traffic control, and I was there for thirty-five years. There you go. <laughs> it was in your blood, then, sir. Yeah, isn't well, it? that's what I mean. You know, that's all got in my system, and and then uh, we got into the history of the airport, and you know, down the road. But anyway. So before we kick into some of that stuff, can you just tell me a little bit? You know, tell me about Gander. What is it, what's it like? What's um. What does it look like? You know, how big is the economy? Uh, how big is the town? And, you know, what's the uh, topography like? Okay, well, we'll start off with uh, when they decided to build an airport back in the, in the 40s, uh, or I'm sorry, in the 30s, they had to look for the uh, plateau uh, in somewhere in Newfoundland where they could, uh, you know, put an airport in. And that's so the terrain around Gander and stuff is, is just flat until you go for about a mile and then it comes comes to a steep drop and it drops to 500 feet right down to a lake. And, you know, it makes good for a good bobsledding. And, and well, they tried to put a ski, a ski run in there but years ago, but the, 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 to start off with, the, the length of the run would be too short. So, uh, so and then on the other side of it, of course, we have just marshland, you know, so. So anyway, that that's uh, basically what the topography is like. Uh, the town itself, like I say, it's. Uh, I, I don't. I, I, it, 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 we always said there was nobody that's unemployed in, in in Gander. Now that's not really true because there's going to be always a few, but there is no such thing as people as employment is very very low in the town itself and unemployment. I mean. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, and, and we have, a, most of the people there are professional, uh, doctors, lawyers, air traffic controllers, pilots. Uh, we've had, uh, we've had it, you know, several airlines over the years that headquartered in Gander. So, I mean, you know, like the economy is very, very stable and, and, you know, like, I mean, there's no shortage of, of car lots and, and all-terrain vehicle, uh, uh places to, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, take your money. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful, pristine wilderness, isn't it? That surrounds yes, your town. Yeah, like like people uh, people can uh, get up in the morning and go moose hunting, uh, and they, uh, you know, and and you go moose hunting and come back and and have their lunch. Uh, they can in the summertime uh, they can 
get aboard a car and drive for a half hour and and do and do uh, Atlantic salmon fishing, fly fishing. So and then you got you know uh, recreation uh, areas where uh, for boating and for camping and things like that. So, but now. In order for us to get something that's probably unique, we probably have to go to the capital city, which is St. John's, and that's about a three-hour drive. So yeah, yeah. It's, I was reading up about um, Gander, and was talking about the the beautiful, pristine wilderness. You know, as you said, mooses, bears, foxes, lynx, uh, coyotes. Um, even had a polar even bear the occasional. One time. Well, there you go. I was just about to say, I read about the polar bear. Um, that seems amazing. Although it does fit with the uh, the icebergs that um, that drift along the coast there. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, the coast the coast is uh, uh, from the town uh, in a car uh, car drive is about uh, about 25, 30 minutes. Uh, I, I mentioned the polar bear. This is what happened. It came down at one of the ice flows and uh, just uh, landed and decided to uh, go look for something to eat and started going and then for some reason were in chased another animal or whatever ended up by a, uh, they found him in the back of a kentucky fried chicken establishment <laughs> shouldn't <laughs> laugh like, too much but <laughs> i guess the smell sort of like dragged him along <laughs> let him alone yeah. <laughs> now jack Gander Airport once lay claim to be the world's busiest airport. And um, I want to go back to the very beginning of um, of the airport because unlike most airports that are built in response to a bulging population um, and demands for improved transportation, um, that's not how Gander Airport started out, was yeah. it? Um, it was literally... Um, an airport that was started in the late 30s that was built up in the middle of the Newfoundland wilderness. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very unique story about how it started. Uh, it all started, uh, well, when aviation started to hit uh, after the First World War, and um, Britain was, was uh, in, in the, I think it was in the mid-20s, something like that. They were with flying boats, and they were flying down down to South Africa, India, Australia, places like that, but they could not go to Canada. <clears throat> not that they couldn't go there. I mean, but it's that, that ocean is about pretty close to 2,000 miles, you know, like across there. And uh, they didn't have the uh, capability of flying that range without having to landing and refuel. Plus the fact that uh, uh, it would be only a, a, a six-month operation without, you know, like like we have winters that uh, that are six months long, and, and I don't mean uh, like we'll start in the fall of the year when it starts cooling off, and then we get some snow, and then when the ice flows comes in. So that's not for flying boats. You can't land when it's going to be frozen water, things like that. So you know they wouldn't be able to set up a, a system. I'm going into a long story, or I know, but that's the, that was the basics for it all. And then when Lindbergh flew across in 1927, what he did, people started were interested in getting a flying service into Canada because and North America, but basically Canada, because for the same reasons they were going into Australia for there. I mean, there were the biggest thing was mail, like getting uh, and, and, and businesses wanted to, to send paperwork back and forth and things like that. And uh, the only way you could get across the Atlantic was by a ship. So Canada was starting doing more of their uh, communications and business with uh, with the United States because we're, you know we're so we're sort of adjoined to them there. So anyway, there was Britain that started uh, talking to fellows like Lindbergh, and they said, "Listen, 
there are plans being made in the United States in the, in the manufacturing of airplanes that are going to be passenger carrying airplanes. And uh, they're going to have the range to fly to the Atlantic. So then in 1930, well, between then and 1930, the British government decided that they would have a conference of building an airport in North America that they could reach. So they met in... Now, get, uh, now, start off when Newfoundland was, was the original colony of, 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 of Great, Great Britain. Britain was in 1497. But by this time, Newfoundland had gained its, its independence and was its own, its own country, so you want to call it that. So they invited Newfoundland, Ireland, uh, the United States, and Canada, and Britain. They met in Ottawa to discuss building a, a major airport in, 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 uh, in North America. Uh, of course, uh, the uh, Canadian government was very interested in establishment in, uh, on the, in the East Coast. Which, and Newfoundland was not a part of Canada at that time. They're independent. But Britain did not want to put an airport in Canada. They did not want to put an airport in the United States. They want to put it in their own airport. So through some political tricks, trickstry, what do you want to call it that, they uh, took over Newfoundland again. They, they uh, ripped up their agreement for independence, said you guys couldn't, uh, haven't got the financial capacity to continue, so we're going to have to come and, and, uh, and look after you and govern you. So they set up a commission of government in Newfoundland, and this was in, 19, in the 1930-1931 or something like that. And then they decided, now that we own Newfoundland back again, we're going to build an airport. And that's where they built it in, uh, in Newfoundland. So that's how it started. So, so they passed the, the law in 1935, and the British, the, the, uh, Britain decided to build us, uh, the airport. But it was all based on, on mail. And, and, and they said they would take a few passengers along to pay for the fuel, but mailing was the big thing. And I mean, they were really talking about expensive mail, like, uh, like a letter that cost $2, which is now, that's what it, that's what it costs now. <laughs> Back in the 30s, yeah, yeah. that was big money, two bucks. Uh, and and so, uh, so anyway, they, they decided they would, uh, they would uh, uh, build this, this airport, and they had no idea what they were building. They had never, seen, they never had an air, airplane built that could fly, fly the, uh, the ocean. They didn't know how big this airplane was going to be. So they built three landing strips, actually four landing strips, and which comes up to because we the runways are one side or uh, it depends on which side you land on. So you can end up with having two runways for one landing strip. And the first uh, one they built was 800 feet wide. And the next one, and they built two, three like that. And then they built one more. 1200 feet wide now to give you some re relation to that a runway is 200 feet wide the present day runways that take the 747 was 200 feet wide what wow, they were expecting they some six, pretty big planes to get over there they had six <laughs> runway they had the runways were were, were six runways wide so they built like it was just a monstrous and there was and just always just just nothing but pavement they had, and they had uh, two power plants, uh, was a primary power plant and a secondary power, uh, uh, and, and a backup power plant. One building was a three-story building that they were going to use as a residence, hotel, operations, control tower, meteorological office, office and when it was going to be a terminal. And that was it, no more than that to it. So they built about four houses. To, for the, the housing managers, and that's how it all started. And the memorial broke up in 1939, and of course there was a 
they had a problem getting airplanes uh, uh, into into Great Britain for to fight the war because the 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 U-boats were sinking them uh, faster than they could to sail across. And uh, somebody came up with the idea, well, let's, let's, let's well, the, you, we built this great big airport there, so why not use it? So, that's how- so can I just grab you there for a moment, Jack, because it is important that we think about this geographically as well, that um, New Finland is pretty much, in, and Gand is pretty much as east as you can get, isn't it? it it's as close to... Um, it's the closest point to, to Europe yeah. Um, yeah. on the East Coast. Yeah, and, and, that, was, and, and that was another feature. Uh, that was another fe- feature. Uh, uh, Britain wanted control <clears throat> of every airplane that went overseas. That was another purpose of the airplane. They had control of that. That was their airport. And if you wanted to go fly overseas from uh, if an airline started up in Canada, or in, in the United States that were wanted to fly to, to anywhere in Europe, they had to pay Britain for the purpose, for the privilege of landing at Gander, at this airport. Now, it was not called Gander at that time. Uh, they just referred to it as the Newfoundland Airport. So yeah. uh, uh, this was one of the biggest reasons that, that in order for a plane air, and it was, it was on a direct route from, from New York to London, uh, would take you right over, takes you right over Gander. Uh, you know, like the planning yeah. was, it was accidental, I think, in that respect. I don't think they realized that they were going to point, you know, like to take it, but they did, and 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 uh, and that was and that was a prime thing. Like like if they Britain could not put it in uh, 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 when aviation started, they knew that airplanes that were leaving North America uh, could bypass Britain to get to to uh, get to Europe. But if they owned Newfoundland, which they did, and they owned the airport, then you had to land in Great Britain before you could get to Europe. That's basically what it was yeah. all about. Like, I mean, it was all political, you know, really in that respect. And then, of course, when the war started, it was it was just like, who came up with this idea of putting this airport there? Well, it wasn't really because they were expecting a war. It was just by stroke of luck. Just the way it worked. Yeah. And when you, th- when you think about it too, that the, <clears throat> as you said, that, where it's actually built is is a flat piece of terrain that's quite surrounded by you know rugged um, uh, rugged mountains and and the like is that part of the, the 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 requirement that the British government had was that they wanted a location that was obviously flat um, had to be fog free didn't it yeah, yeah. Um, and it had to be accessible and Gander at that stage literally had the only infrastructure was a was a narrow gauge railway track that and Wallambala, they decided that they would build an airport there for planes that hadn't been invented yet. Like, like, uh, uh, my family moved to Gander. Well, my father was in Gander during the war. Uh, He was a civilian that was in, in support of the military there. And after the war, my mother and I moved in. I was only a baby. I was two years old when we moved into Gander right as soon as the war ended, right? And I lived in Gander then, upon until, ooh, let me see, I'm trying to figure out now how old I was. In fact, I graduated, I was graduated high school, I was working with air traffic control before we could drive out of Gander in a car. Yeah, right. We lived in, we lived in complete isolation for about, you know, about 20 years or not quite 20 years, but you know, and and and, and uh, the only way in was via train. Now they did eventually. They they did put a rail. They they did put a, a, a road in as far as a river. Then we had to take a ferry to get across the river, and then we had to go across another river, another ferry to get across because there was no bridges. 
going the other way, I'm talking about going west, not to go east and towards St. John's. Just, there was just no roads. And they, they finally got a road in, in the late 50s to put a road uh, to a certain distance. Then you get, you put your car on a railway car and then you, you, you uh, took the train for about oh, an hour and a half. And then they, you got off the tra- took your car off the train and then you could drive into St. John's. So it wasn't a lot of, the, yeah. But now, now the funny part about it, you know, you could get aboard an airplane, go to London, you go to New York, go to Montreal, go to Paris, but you couldn't, go, you couldn't go to St. John's. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like I've got a, I've got a, I've got a place that where, where, where my wife is from is a little community outside of Gander, and and it takes me like that's where we we we've, we've got a little house there now that we're retired, and it takes me an hour. An hour's drive from there into Gander. That's what how long it takes. When I was a kid, it would take us 11 hours to get to this community. That's where my mother and father were from. It would take me 11 hours or take our family 11 hours. We'd have to go on train for so many distance, get into get into a, into a boat, and then we'd have to travel over water for about eight hours before we get to this community. And, and therein lies part of the curiosity with this story, Jack, is that it's a just an unbelievable um, example of how important infrastructure is. Oh, yeah. Um, that here you've got infrastructure both ways, where you've got infrastructure and you haven't got infrastructure. You don't have roads and a rail network to be able to get around easily in your own country, and yet you've got this massive airport that um, <laughs> is the conduit across the Atlantic Ocean. It's, it is it is quite bizarre. Well, it, and, it, was, it, was, it was unique, to say the least. You know? <laughs> so... <laughs> So tell me this, in the in the 30s when they were building the airport, who built it? Where did these tradespeople's come from? Uh, how did it get how did you build this thing in the middle of nowhere? The most talented Newfoundlander, uh, non-skilled, is a carpenter. I'll tell you that right now. Like like I mean, well, you see we're a, 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 a we're settled from 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 England from a, from the west coast of England and the press in 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 the, uh, the Cornwall area in the Dorset area in England, so everybody was a everybody was a, was a sailor, and to be a sailor you got to be a carpenter, and you got to be a carpenter because you got to repair your ship if you happen to go, you know, and and so so that skill was 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 sort of inbred into into Newfoundlanders, except me, I I couldn't I can't drive a nail straight, so, <laughs> so but anyway that that's besides the point. The the point is is that. Uh, when they started to build, uh, uh, build this airport, they they put the word out and said, "Listen, we're looking for carpenters, and we're looking for people that are that can, you know." So, so what they did, they hired a bunch of people uh, uh, from uh, from Canada and the United States and from Britain, and they were like uh, foreman or and they became instructors. So they'd get a guy in and they would say, look, see these two wires? If you connect them up, you get electricity. So boom, all of a sudden, about six or eight months later, you had an electrician. So he helped out a little bit. And then and then you same thing with a plumber. And 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 they and then it would and of course they imported the steel workers, you know. I mean, like those guys, my father was telling me when he was in he'd come to Gander in nineteen forty. And uh, and when the war started, and he started building hangars, and they were building hangars as fast as they could, because they wanted it. And he said, in the evening, you what you would walk out in just like fireworks, where 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 there were the uh, the guys were throwing the, the the red hot rivets. You know, he said, just yeah. unbelievable to see those guys. And they put up they put up fourteen hangars, fourteen or fifteen hangars 
in about four or five months. You know, like it was unbelievable how they built an airport and such. A, you know, we went from nothing to, to, to uh, uh, we had a, a, an RCF base, we had a USF base, we had an RAF base. That was, and then we had uh, uh, the US Navy uh, uh, brought in a contingent there for to run uh, boats on Gander Lake just in case there's airplane crashes. The Canadian Navy brought in a communication setup. Like, like all of a sudden, like boom, you know, they built this base and they built it within a year. It's unbelievable how they could build something that fast, you know, in this day. They, well, to start off with, they started building the airport in 1937. In 1939, they had it, they were landing big airplanes on it. You know, two years of building an airport from, from straight wilderness where they went on and cut down trees and bring in bulldozers on a, on a railway cars and put them overboard and started tearing up tearing up the land and leveling it off and then putting asphalt down. And I was just telling you about the runways. I mean, those runways are 5,000 5, foot long, 1,200 feet wide. It was unbelievable, you know, and he did all that in two years, you know. Like, by, a couple of, by a couple of sailors. Yeah. Some, yeah, it's yeah just, brought, it is an amazing story. And, and like I said, you brought them in and trained them. Like, and, and then, of course, uh, uh, the next story is that fellows started coming back from overseas, and then all of a sudden they became, uh, they became uh, uh, air traffic controllers and they became uh, aircraft maintenance operators. And, you know, like, they, all, they just sort of, like, and I don't think that's anything special. I think it's when 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 you boil it down, when when things are necessary to do, you can do it. You know, I mean, and if you got the effort to do it, you know, the willpower, I think. <laughs> and and the thing is too to remember here, Jack, is that like the thirties economically was was very harsh in New Finland, wasn't it? Depression. Not only were you coming off the back of the the, the Great um, Depression, but you had the collapse of the, 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 the salt fisheries, very, very high unemployment. Um, it was said, or I read somewhere that they reckon that over a third of the population was on government relief. Yeah. Um, public debt was over $100 million um, after the, the, the First World War. I mean, it was, it was economically, you know, in some serious trouble, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now we had, we did have uh, we had two paper mills there. Uh, they're both British. Uh, uh, that uh, it's been, been they were set up back in oh in the late nineteen hundreds. They were set up, and then they, we had uh, a couple of mining companies. We had an a uh, 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 big iron mine that that was uh, one end of the island. Then they had another uh, uh, lead and zinc mine. So so like there was there was other uh, other kind of work than than people that were fishing but yet fishing was was a was a pretty bleak business you know yet yeah that's that was my 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 grandfather and my grand you know my two grandfathers they grew up in a small community with uh, and we were fishermen and they and then the winter when when uh, when there was no ice or when there's too much ice i'm sorry to go fishing then they would uh, go into the cut lumber or cut uh, pulpwood for the for the uh, for the paper mills and you know it's it kind of it's kind of tough bleak. life <laughs> yeah yeah bleak what what about um what about your dad you said he in the 40s he uh, came to work in the um, at the airport, but what did he do before that? Uh, he, he was he was just uh, a young man that was uh, uh, he didn't want to go fishing and in uh, and he was uh, a cookie into a lumber camp and uh, a friend of the family built a, um, a, a 
bunch of stores and they had a, a, a store anyway that they put in Gander during the war to uh, handle the military, you know, supply the military. So my father went there as, as an assistant manager with them and he worked at that for about 10 years. And then he went, to, then he, uh, when we went to Confederation, we became part of Canada. He joined uh, the Canadian government as a uh, personnel officer with the uh, Air Force, with the RCAF. So, so that's what he did all his life. And you know, he wasn't involved in the airport at all, you know. So, uh, I, I, so, I mean, yes, he did work at the airport and he was part of the system, but I mean, he wasn't part of aviation directly. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. And the... The folk that built the airport, Jack, where did they live and how did they commute to 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 you know to work as such? The workers, you mean? Yeah, the workers. Oh yeah, well, but uh, uh, well, what they did, they built um, camps, they built uh, like uh, uh, dormitories and big cookhouses and all that, and then they would come in on the train and and uh, and go to work, and they would work for as long as it was necessary. Uh, they couldn't just flick home every weekend. Uh, they had to uh, get aboard of a train and probably take about a three-hour train, four-hour train ride. And they'd get off the train and they'd get aboard of a boat to get to where they lived. You know, uh, uh, you know, like I tell you, there's an amazing thing right now in Newfoundland. You can go into communities. Like uh, a few years ago, my wife and I went camping. We decided we were going to start touring Newfoundland a bit more because... Uh, we've seen a lot of part of the world, but we've never been seeing a lot of new land, you know. <laughs> but, so anyway, we went down to this this one area, and uh, we always knew it was kind of uh, uh, unpopulated type thing. So we got down there, and we and they had a uh, a ferry that traveled uh, up the coast about no oh, about sixty miles or so to little communities, little fishing communities. And and it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a ferry for it was a passenger boat, actually. It was a, a ferried people more than anything else. Mm-hmm. We went into communities. There's about three communities there that we went into. There's not even a road in the community. There's not even a vehicle, not even a motor vehicle. Now you're talking 2015, right? Not a not a motor vehicle. The only motor vehicle they had there was an all-terrain vehicle. And houses were built on cliffs, you know, like like I mean, you know. And and uh, and there, <laughs> feel like stepping back well, in time. Still working, a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean they're still living there. They're fishermen. They and they're and they're making uh-huh. wages. I mean they're making. I mean they got they got uh, salmon farms there, and they and they fish lobster and all that, and, and lobster get. And they would and so they would use this ferry. And what they do is they'll probably have a car that's just uh, sixty miles down the road parked in this big parking lot. And then if they if they want to go shopping or something like it, they get aboard the ferry, they go down, and get aboard the car, and they drive in to Gander and places like that, and do the shopping, come back and get aboard the ferry, go back to the, then they go fishing. Their schooling um, right now is all done on the internet. They they, they just do internet school down there, and uh, and you know like right now with this COVID thing on the go, I mean everybody is complaining. Oh, we got to take you know we got to get on on uh, Zoom to do school and all that still doing it now as part of their education plan now that's only for a certain you know that's not a lot of people like this not a lot of communities like this because they're they're trying to get those people out of those communities move them out yeah and the government will pay them to move and all this all nonsense but those don't those people don't want to leave they like this kind of life it's just peaceful and you know like they're not, uh, not yeah. <laughs> there's no it's a- no cops like no police down there there's no cops. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> 
It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is, you know, like uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of a country, you know, when you go around and, and people not, are not aware of, of, of some of the uh, some of the communities that are left Newfoundland like that, you know. But it's not like them. It's not a lot of them, but you know, I mean, it's pretty unique. So tell me this, Jack. Um, the airport didn't kick off as they were expecting, did it? The um, the first flight, as I understood, that first overseas flight that took off from Gander was Charles Backman, wasn't it? Yes. Which. Yes. Um, the first didn't, first, didn't go as planned, let's the say. The first guy that, went, uh, uh, that uh, attempted to cross the, uh, the North Atlantic from Gander, and he's the first person that died as a result of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Am I correct in saying he um, uh, he told a few white lies as to why and how and who he was as to oh, yeah. get his plane refueled and get it taken off to uh, to have a crack? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, actually, you know what? I'll tell you, you know, uh, you've heard, heard tell this guy, uh, wrong way, Corrigan. They, they called me as a pilot, right? Uh, and uh, and he left New York and ended up in, in Ireland, right? And uh, and they said, uh, and he said, I got lost. And they said, well, you were going the wrong way. And he, uh, he picked up his nickname, wrong way, Corrigan. But he just made up a lie because it was, it was illegal to fly, uh, you know, across the Atlantic, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, uh, it, 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 uh, it's... Uh, um, it's a pretty uh, well, you know. I, 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 I uh, the the airplanes uh, like it was never ever. Gander Airport was never intended to be. It was just it was the biggest accident that like I just went into the first part of it about about the war starting. As soon as the war was over, somebody got this great idea. Well, well like we got the airplanes now. Let's just put seats in them. So they converted yeah, a few old airplanes, you know, and 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 uh, next thing you know, 1946, yeah, we had our first major air crash in Gander. Like Sabina, a DC-4 left uh, Brussels to come to Gander, right, and crashed and killed half the passengers that were aboard the airplane. 1946. So was that? That's how close it was to the to the first world to the Second World War that when aviation started. And and like I said, uh, uh, they had no place to put the people that were coming in to work at the airport. So they had to convert the old uh, military barracks and all that into apartments. And, and then you know, somebody said, "Boys, this we can't keep on going like this because I mean the planes are getting bigger and bigger and." And, and and it's getting more dangerous. So they decided, well, let's build a new town. So they built a new town. They started in the 50s. And then by the time 58, 59 rolled around, people were starting to live in, in where the present day Gander, you know, uh, it was, uh, 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 you know, like there was, it was never intended to be, you know, and, and aviation went from there and then the airplanes got bigger and got bigger and bigger. Well, like one time you had to land Gander. You were going from anywhere in North America to Europe or Europe to North America, you had to land in Gander because Gander. the airplane yeah. would not take, could not fly that far. And they were too slow. Like, I mean, gee whiz, you know, like it was a 14 hour flight just about from London to uh, to New York, if you're taking on all the stops and routes, and all, you know, on all the refueling they had to do. And, and uh, uh, you know, like we just evolved into that. And then all of a sudden the airplanes got big, busier and busier or bigger and bigger and, 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 and could, could, could fly farther. So landing Gander was no, no longer necessary. Necessary. We'll get to that in a little bit, Jack. Let's go back to the war because um, it was almost like it was on cue, wasn't it, that uh, the war came about from, a, from Gander's point of view, from an economic point of view, that 
Um, the Gander Airport was taken out of civilian hands and converted into a military base. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was, again, it was seen as a very strategic stronghold that that the Allies couldn't allow the invasion of New Finland because it would open up the entire East Coast um, to attack and obviously it'll be threatened trade routes um, at the like. And it, it again, um, really shows the locational advantage that, that Gander does actually have. But what I wanted to ask is that you, you mentioned before that um, that the planes were getting, you know, originally they were shipping the planes to to Europe and, and they were getting torpedoed by the by the U-boats that that they eventually started to fly these planes to America. What was, uh, sorry, to, to Europe, um, to the UK, that what was what was the transformation? What was the technological changes that enabled them to actually start to fly that distance properly, Joe? Well, in 1941, when the first, uh, uh, 1940, I get my dates all wrong. <laughs> but anyway, 1940, they, they, uh, they uh, uh, took a couple of Hudson bombers, not more than two, it took seven Hudson bombers, and they put extra tanks into them. Uh, the navigation wasn't all that uh, uh, good. It was just sort of like a seat of the pants flying type thing. So from there, they decided that they would make the airplanes bigger. Now, like, for example, uh, um, the Lancaster bomber and the B-17 bomber and all that, they had to fly a long distance from the, to get into the, into the middle part of or the, where they wanted to do their bombing in Europe, uh, you know, during the war. So it just made the airplanes engines more powerful and the and the fuel tanks bigger and uh, and the ability to fly with a bigger load uh it just evolved like like when the first airplane that we're flying before in the pre-war it, it was it was wasn't intended to be to fly far to carry passengers it only got to the point where after the war was over people started saying started waking up and saying listen you know we got yeah, good going. There's something here. Yeah, we, yeah. Something it's, here. You know, let's develop these planes into uh, passenger airplanes, you know, and that's where it all comes from. So it, and then the, 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 the mil their landing aids became better. And, you know, this is pretty, yeah. I don't know if you've ever been on, 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 on a, in, in an airplane out in the middle of the ocean somewhere and look around. You can't say it was like in a boat in the big lake or something like that you know it all looks the same doesn't up down left right it's yeah, all exactly, the same isn't exactly. it exactly so you had to have a, a good you know i mean those guys were uh, uh some of those pilots when they first started uh, around the north atlantic they had to do do star shots like they had a little uh a little glass dome in the in the cockpit on the in the on the roof of the airplane they would get up and they would take that's how they navigated the star shots you know you're talking flying an airplane like they're you're navigating the ship you know, you know like i heard uh, well, i read somewhere um that um during that throughout the the, the war years there was over twenty thousand planes that left gander for um uh, for europe um Everything, obviously, as you said, had to pass through Gander. Um, and when I was reading that, they were talking about the, the navigation and how crude it was. And there was someone who made the joke that basically when they flew off as a squadron, that they the idea was to stay together. And if you got lost, then just head for London. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was um, that was part of a that was part of a, a pretty good movie. Uh, it, <laughs> it was it was uh, it was. Uh, it was 
It was supposed to be said by by uh, by squadron leader uh, Bennett, anyway. And Bennett, he was a Nazi too, by the way. So is that right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> he was a, he was the commander. He was the guy in charge of ferry command in Gander, uh, and uh, he was a uh, uh, yeah. And he after after they finished uh, ferry command, uh, and the RAF took over, and and, and he went uh, flying bombers, and he was part of the uh, the the Danbusters. Um, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, is it true that Winston Churchill once referred to Gander as the largest aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic? That's what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And right now, uh, uh, there's a day. I won't say a day, but exactly a week goes by. But as an airplane develops a mechanic, you know, uh, or got a, a sick passenger on board, you got to come in and, and land in Gander. You know. In fact. Uh, 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 there's been a lot of uh, historical uh, things that happen in Gander uh, uh, from an aviation point of view, you know. And I, I mean, it 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 it, it was where uh, transoceanic traffic started, really, uh, and developed. And then it was developed in Gander. And and now, I mean, it wasn't only. I mean, they flew in a lot of help from from other places, like you know, like Americans came in and set up the airlines there and all that. They hired a lot of Newfoundlanders, and in fact, one of our famous Newfoundlanders was a, a young lad that came to Gander during the during the war. He worked with Ferry Command, and and worked. He was a secretary to to the base commander. And as soon as the war was over, uh, the airline started. They hired him, and he went work with TWA, and he worked. Uh, Right up until the 60s, that TWA had a station at a base in Gander, and then he moved to New York, and he went with them, and uh, he became uh, he became in charge of the of the uh, of the triple airports there in New York, uh, LaGuardia, Newark, and and uh, Kennedy, uh, you know, for TWA. So you know, like I mean, uh, we contributed the people that worked for the airlines in Gander uh, contributed a lot to aviation over the years. Well, it's played a very important role. Yeah. Yeah. And tell me, Jack, you're as a boy, you grew up in a boarding house um, just outside the airport, didn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Throughout the war, tell us about that. What? How was that? Oh, okay. Uh, 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 there were three. We had uh, three uh, housing um, areas in Gander. Um, was the uh, the USAF, where the uh, United States Air Force. Uh, they would call that the American side, and they had, they had apartments up there. And then right across the field from them was the uh, RCAF base, which we call the Canadian side. And then there was another place where the Canadian Army had their camp, and they came, we would call that the Army side. And, and we lived on the Army side, and we had a, uh, it was an eight-shaped building, buildings, should say there are quite a few of them. Uh, eight shape, and they had uh, eight apartments in those buildings, and uh, they were, you know, two bedroom apartments. Um, uh, uh, we had no heating. Uh, we were only location ever had heating. That was another unique thing that we had in Gander. They had heating plants there. They had four four heating. I'm not sure one burnt down, but there were uh, ended up with four heating plants, and they had pipes, great big um, pipes, are about eight inches. Uh, across and they would and there were steam pipes they would just run across down the street and they were all insulated with with asbestos of course and they would heat they would go in and 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 uh, into the buildings and they had radiation uh, uh radiators i should say with hot water and they would heat the buildings 
And they did that for just all of Gander, all except the army side. Now the army guys, they were tougher. I mean, they, I mean, they, they didn't care about the cold weather, you know. So uh, they had each had their own uh, little um, furnace rooms that heated. Their each barracks had its own furnace room. When they converted into apartments, because of the they needed extra space to build the apartments, he had to uh, to uh, take out the furnace rooms. So they left the apartments uh, with just uh, basic. Uh, heaters in you know like uh, uh, coal heaters and then uh, and dot would come down and we all everybody had a coal bin and they would come down and fill up the coal bin my father uh and most of the people on the uh, on the canadian and the, on the army side were uh, uh used to cutting their own uh, wood and then and they would uh cut wood for for heat and heat the houses and all that but quite com quite comfortable you know, we had a bathroom, kitchen, living room, and three bedrooms. So they were quite, quite large. And then uh, yeah, other okay. buildings in the, on the, on the, on the side, we had, uh, they converted them to, uh, we had a movie theater uh, that was left over from, from the military. Uh, we had a drill hall that was left over. From, there were two drill halls that were left over from the military. Drill, the drill hall was... It was a building in itself. They had an Olympic-sized swimming pool, two basketball courts, a series of, of outer buildings that were attached to it, you know, uh, uh, the clubs there and all that. And, uh, and we, we had the use of that. In fact, uh, one, the one drill hall was so big that they made a hockey stadium out of it, you know. So that we used that as a, we used that for classrooms. We had uh, rooms in that building as a school. We could do our, our physical uh, uh, training there, you know, and we had uh, badminton courts and, and basketball and volleyball. Even had a wrestling ring, ring there, uh, a, sh <laughs> a, a, a shooting range uh, that was down in the basement. And then they had a bowling alley that was attached to, to the building. So that, that was in the RCF building, that was. And that was a part of the built during the war. And which we had the use of as civilians after the war. <laughs> so, well, yeah, right. And 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 growing up there, like to start off with, uh, they just stripped the land. They just completely stripped the land right down to the bare ground, and they built all these buildings there. And then and they had barbed wire. That was constituted just wrote around barbed wire. You know, what they call it Constantine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they had that all over. And so and then. Uh, in a few years, the bushes grew up through this, and like they were just barricades. You'd just go lying in the woods, and all of a sudden, boom! You're right into a, a barbed wire fence. And 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 I and I can remember as a kid, you know. And then of course, you in order to get around, you had to, had to probably walk a couple hundred yards to get around. But we would say, no, we're not going to waste that time walking. We're going to go through. Through it, of course. Right? <laughs> so we come home, and like I. My mother, I can remember now when I was about seven years old, I guess, and 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 uh, I was going through a pair of uh, canvas uh, sneakers about a pair a week, and because uh, you're going through the hook in and you take the big rip out of them. So anyway, my mother said to me, she said, "Okay, that's it. In the next year, if you tear up one more pair of, of sneakers, I'm getting you hard leather boots." So anyway, uh, I uh, I tore up another pair, and I was seven years old, and she bought me these great big pair of boots. And and you had to lace them up. They came up well over my ankle, right? And oh, they weighed a ton on I couldn't run with the rest of the guys because they were, you know, a little bit faster than me. So anyway, and I was clumsy with those big boots that'd be falling around. So anyway, I got the nickname of Boots. So that nickname stayed right <laughs> 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 for the <those> boots. <laughs> 
but Jack Boots Pinson, is that right? Like, like, like there was, uh, uh, they had AAA guns there. That, uh, they, they didn't know when they were going to get attacked during the war because, I mean, their submarines were just right along the shoreline everywhere. You know, people every now and then would see a sub. And they're, in fact, they used to blame the, the Germans are coming ashore and, and raiding the hen houses and things like that, going getting eggs and things like that. They would steal it. Now, they wouldn't come in and, and, and raid the place, but they would just sneak in because they didn't want to alert the authorities because then they would put in, in and they wouldn't be able to do it. And because they were complimenting their diet and their, and their supplies, you know, by coming in and stealing things. So that's how close yeah. the Germans were to, to, to the coast. And and uh, and everybody, well, not everybody, not civilians in particular, but all the military were concerned about about uh, being an invasion. So therefore, but they didn't know. And aircraft carriers, they weren't sure if 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 the Germans had aircraft carriers or not. But they weren't taking any chances. So what they had set up yeah. all around the airport was was uh, anti-aircraft artilleries. And so that was another play area that we had when we grew up, you know, like you know, they, they did take the guns out, but they left the, the embankment, uh, the, you know, like the, the, where the guns were located and all that. But, and then they had a few, a couple of dummy guns, like, you know, like uh, they would have uh, wooden, wooden guns that were set up, like to be like, so in, in for surveillance, they would come in like, oh yeah, they're like well, well armed. Meanwhile, they had about three of those uh, anti-aircraft guns sitting there. And they were on a great big platform, round platform, that was just still they're movable, and it looked, looked like a real gun, right? And we used to use that. We used to we used to play play with that thing, get up, and and then you know if there's a, was one that was situated on the army side and then was lined up for one runway, and and so and you get up in the morning and and you see the air the airplanes come and land. It's oh my, you know they're going to over our, our gun. So you run. And so there'd be four or five of us, we run up, we get aboard this gun, right? And then we take turns shooting on airplanes, right? And, you know, just, you know, like I was moving around, we just, you know, and, and that was like, our, our, and then exploring old buildings, you know, there are some buildings that were still, uh, uh, you could get inside and, and if there wasn't, no, uh, you couldn't get inside, we'd find a way to get inside and you get in, rummage around to see what they had, what you could find. Another place, another area they had, there was a lot of accidents during the war, and they had two uh, what we call we call them airplane dumps, but they're junkyards. Like as soon as an airplane would crash, rather than they would take out probably the, some of the instruments out or some of the guns out of them, yeah, and then they would yeah. just take them and go and put them in a great big pile. So they had two piles, there were two two aircraft dumps, and one was up near the U USAF base, and the ones were right down where, where we were, in our area. And that was our playground, you know, and then you go out in the mornings, you know, on a Saturday morning, you go out, and the first thing your mother would say to you, now, don't you go near those airplane dumps today. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're dangerous, right? Uh, that was, yeah, no, Mom, I'm not going to go there. To I wouldn't go near them. I'd go into them. <laughs> That's <laughs> wouldn't tell a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like that was our playground. Like we had all that kind of stuff. Like we thought that was great. You get up. We found a fifty caliber machine gun up there one day, and it was an old rusty. Was burned up or whatever, because when the, when the aircraft caught a fire, you know, burned up. And so we had we got that, and we we uh, uh, four or five of us. We had to lug this great big heavy fifty caliber machine gun, right? And then was we went down, and we had a little place that we had our fort. 
you know, it was concrete fort because it was a where it was a gun emplacement, right? And we stuck our, our our fifty caliber up on it, and that was our fortress, boy. And we had the best fortress in, in the town. <laughs> Unbelievable! So how, how many people? How many people would have been um, uh, living on the base then, Jack? How many? How many people were talking? Civilians, about? you mean? Yes, yeah, well, civilian and military folk, and military folk well, as well. Well, uh, I mean, military, like, oh, my God, I don't know. Well, we had, uh, we had 5,000 people that lived on the, on the, on the airport, uh, uh, three or 4,000. I'm sorry, four or 5,000 people. So you can imagine that was tripled because we were living in one H apartment building with, with uh, eight families. Well, you know damn well. I mean, they had eight guys sitting with bunks close together and those things, so you can almost triple it, right? So I would say probably had 15 or 20,000. We, we had three movie theaters. In, in the in the town that 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 we had use that uh, that they gave us use of after the war was over well to do one theater and moved and made it into a Catholic church right so uh, and because of the high ceilings and all that all nonsense so they made a little little mini church out of it so it must have been a huge boom for like economically for the town uh, now see there's another thing there's another thing when they started construction when they started construction and like they were started paying big wages and and, and the government in Newfoundland, we did have a, a local government and the provincial government actually after the war and they wanted to pay big wages and then the government made them pay about one third of the going rate for the different trades around because they didn't want to uh, ruin the economy and ruin it because one area would be top wages and then 90% of the area would be one third of that wage. So they want, yeah. you, you know, they were just trying to keep the common economy level. You're trying to make it level. So, so the guy that was working in Gander wasn't making three times or twice as much money as the guy that was working in the city, something like that. Right. So, and uh, also, that would have been very hard to do, though, wouldn't it? It would have been very hard to to keep that in a level playing field because yeah, well, I yeah. imagine all those. We had a we had a premier that was uh, he was a real dictator, dictator in, in in a lot of people's opinion, even though he's democratically elected. But uh, now, I, I didn't know too much. I just hear my father talk about it. He he was he was a, a anti anti uh, uh, politician. This individual anyway was. But um, what they would do, like, for example, uh, Americans had, uh, they had three, three, one, two, three, four bases in Newfoundland. They had a base in Goose Bay in Labrador. They had a, a base in uh, Stephenville. They had a base in Argentia, which was a Navy base. And they had a headquarters uh, uh, administrative base in the city of St. John's. And in order for them to come in, they had to get permission, get authority to come in. So that was that was the deal of their of their permission to come in is that you not you cannot pay any more than this wage. Like I mean, and if they did, you know, they want to kick them out, they kick them out. You know, so that's that's how they controlled it. Is that is that in order for for anybody to come in that they, they had to. Uh, uh, they had to go along with the regulations of, uh, of the government. So. But just having that sheer volume of people, um, you know, with money in their pockets, that the, the money that would have gone through the local stores and restaurants and, and other businesses, it, it, it would have made it a, a, a boom town at that time, surely. We had nothing to, we had nothing to, uh, to export. Nothing. The only thing we had to export was a fish and a, a few, and a few minerals and some paper and a newsprint. You know, like, I mean, uh, uh, 
majority of the population in Newfoundland were fishermen, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and they could not make enough money fishing that would compete with, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the buying power of, say, somebody from Gander. It was, be- was bad enough because G- people that were living in Gander were, were working for 12 months of the year, where those guys fishing were only fishing for four or five months of the year. So their wages, you know, were, were a lot lower. So imagine now if, if, if they could pay wages in, in the bigger communities, I mean, look at, for example, uh, products would, would, the price of products would go up and those guys would probably be would just uncontrollable. So in that respect, it was pretty socialistic what they did, but I mean, that's the way. You know, how how did the community cope with that then, Jack? Because and that is a you know really interesting you know you know population what I would say a population based issue or a, a social based issue that um, you know you've got such disparities of not only just income wealth but also the division of labour and and jobs. Yeah. Uh, see, the, 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 there were three, there were four big communities in Newfoundland at that time. When I, and when, in my in my childhood, you might call it that way. Right? Anyway, we had we had two communities that had paper mills. We had one of the communities at an airport, and the other community was was the capital. The rest of the province, and and added all that, I would say that would be equal to about at least a third of the population. So two thirds of the population were, were were fishermen or people running, you know, very very small businesses and things like that. And, the, and you know, like businesses were in it were basically in, in the bigger communities. They just went out, you know, like salesmen went out around to the smaller communities and sold, you know, tins of canned milk and things like that. And then they came back and then they shipped it in on boats, you know. So you know, it's 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 it's, it's uh, when you look back at it. When you look back at it, you can see yeah, there was some some it was worked out pretty well. Everybody, everybody's pretty happy around it, you know. Like there's not too many sad people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I was saying in a in a beautiful location, it's it's uh it's uh, hard not to uh, not to be happy, isn't well, it? Well, you know um, what I tell you what they call the they call Newfoundland the other day. They call Newfoundland the New Zealand of of, uh, of of North America because we've got the lowest. The lowest uh, rate of COVID in, in Canada. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because we're a little island, <coughs> we're isolated. Yeah, that's <clears throat> you know it makes a big difference. So, <laughs> and that's the same way yeah, New Zealand. The reason why New Zealand is so is so well off is they're uh, you know isolated too from from uh, you know like I mean I can't, I'm, I'm living right now. I'm like I'm living in Ottawa, and uh, I'm and I'm still we go back and forth to Newfoundland every every year. So I've got to get permission this year in order for me to get in Newfoundland. I got to get permission to drive in the province of Quebec. I got to get permission to drive in New Brunswick. Got to get permission to drive in Nova Scotia. And now to get to Newfoundland, I got to get permission to live in Newfoundland. So that's yeah, the situation yeah. right now. I mean, you just haven't got the freedom of getting out and going wherever you want to go. You know, uh, I don't know why I, I yeah. brought that subject up, but I did. <laughs> uh, you're right. Um, yeah, so, I guess we're a little. <laughs> so uh, tell me then, Jack. After 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 the war, um, like when did the town of Gander come about? That wasn't until after the war, was it? That they really started to build the town of Gander. They started building the low in 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 the in the early fifties. Uh, you see, as soon as we went into confederation in nineteen forty nine, the Transport Canada or the Ministry of Transport moved in and took over the airport. They were in control of the airport, right? I mean, uh, 
like in order if you want it was like a company town like all of a sudden it became Gander became a company town DOT owned everything they owned the apartment yeah. buildings you had to pay them rent a month you couldn't buy you couldn't own apartment you know uh, the business would come in and, and so, so hang on a tick let me just grab that point there so so you're saying that you you couldn't you couldn't buy an apartment you couldn't buy a house as such no. that it was that the government owned and controlled the housing stock yeah yeah the only thing i mean like like you know a business would come in set up a, a, a supermarket a grocery store a supermarket now they own that supermarket but they didn't own the building right and 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 the, the Department of Transport, they control the water, they control the sewage system, they control the electrical system. They owned everything. They owned everything. They maintained the airport, and 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 I would say uh, at least half or or three quarters of the people work for the transport. Right? Okay. Now, so they're in complete control of it, and and they were getting they were getting uh, they were those buildings were just put together in 1940 when the war, when they decided to use Gander as a, as a base. Those Gander buildings were just came in and I won't say it's slapped together, but they were, they came in, they're almost like, a, they would ship in everything that was pre-cut. Everything was all pre-cut. It wasn't prefabricated as such, but it was pre, everything was pre-cut, you know, to measure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and and it was done in a hurry. So come 1951, 52, things started falling down. You know, like things where you needed replacement, you needed this done, you needed... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And trans, uh, Department of Transport... Was fairly, fairly an hospitable environment to start with as well. Yeah, that's that exactly help, right, it? yeah. Now, you, you think, as well as the volume of people moving through, I mean, the wear and tear would have been, would have been huge. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, uh, like I say, they... Uh, Things started falling down, and they had such a maintenance staff. Like it was unbelievable, a maintenance staff that 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 Ministry of Transport. They had carpenters, you had plumbers, electricians. I mean, you know, they were going flat out just doing repair work, repair work. So finally, I guess somebody said, "Look, this got to end." You know, like this was the this 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 town was an emergency town. This happened to start because there was nothing available when the war was over. Now we got some time to start doing something. So they came in, transport came in, and they uh, surveyed this area. They did all the engineering and the drafting and all this, laid out the streets, uh, put in water and sewage, put in the electrical system, and then they sold the lots of land to people in the town. And they said to them, okay, on a certain date, this town is going to be torn down and you're going to be moving into a new town so you better get with it and started building or getting ready to build a house. And and everybody got excited about that. And I know my mother, she was just couldn't wait to get into her own home, right? You know. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but and 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 it was a lot like her as well. But there were a lot of families that said no, they didn't want to uh, they didn't want to build a house. They didn't want to put and invest any money into it and all that. So those people sort of left. They just quit. Quit where I know where I know a couple of families that their fathers, uh, they, uh, the fathers was working for transport, and they said, "Nope, that's it. We we can't uh, we can't afford to build a house, and we can't afford to live in in a town like this." So they just went moved out and went back to their hometowns where they originally came from, you know, before the war, during the war, whatever. So uh, people like they now we're talking lots of land. Uh, I got a fellow here uh, trying to trying. To, I, I I I took a note here. Uh, yeah, that was in 1950. He bought he bought his his land for uh, 
$650, no, $360 for a 60 foot by 100 foot lot to build a house on. So that's how much it costs, you know, like, I mean, they, they, they really almost gave away the, 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 the land and they set up a, they set up a, um, a mortgage company to come in, which was a, a, a government mortgage company called Central Mortgage and Housing. They, they came in from Ottawa and they set up business and you want to go and you had to, uh, uh, if you built your own house. Uh, you could uh, you get your mortgage for a certain rate, or if you uh, had to hire a, a, a construction company to build it for you, then you had to, you got it at another rate. So and that's how they built the town, and they started. I think they cleared the lots. Start clearing already had the lots ready to um, be built on in 1956 or 57 or something like that. And that's when people started, uh, when we started moving uh, moving in. And they moved it in partially at a time, right? The biggest one of all, of course, was the was the uh, USAF site, the American side. They, should, they they closed that down right away because they were trying to build a new terminal. And, uh, and uh, that was the first place that had to move. You know, they were given a date that they had to be out on, and that was it. So, no, no. So, they built a house. And they built a lot of houses and sold it to them, built houses and rented to them. Then DOT became a, a rental agency as well. So it's completely like it's un, what is it, unusual town. Like somebody said, Gander was the first uh, place that was built as a result of an airport. Normally, airports are built as a result of a town. But this was yeah, correct. Yeah, correct. It was all yeah, front to back, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So like the town was fairly new. I mean, it was uh, we moved in in 1950. Eight when when our family moved in from the old old town into the new town and and uh, it was almost completely empty then like there were still a lot of houses left not not built so it took another two years I think the last person to move out was in 1961 so uh, that's the last time that last person was out and yeah that'll force a lot of people out you know really really give them you know pressure. By doing it that way though, they would have kept the housing price relatively under yes. control, wouldn't yeah, they? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Keeping the land price low and then also ma matching supply with essentially demand. Yeah. Um, that there wouldn't have been a lot of speculation. I wouldn't have thought that would have occurred because of that. No, it was it it it. Uh, like I said, the the government of Canada. Well, we'll call them Canada. Indirectly, they're a ministry of transport. But sorry, indirectly, they were the government of Canada. But we dealt with the ministry of transport, and they looked after everything. You know, like to get in the town set up. Then once the town was set up, they elected a, a community council, and that's it. They said, okay. Now, mind you, they did still agree to clear the streets of snow in the winter time, and they did that up until oh, I don't know, in the mid '60s or late '60s. Anyway, they get that the, the town would not be there'd be no snow cleared until after runways cleared. After runways are cleared, then the plows will come down and do the streets. <laughs> but the town wasn't quite as big as it is today. <laughs> but uh, I was going to say that's funny again, though, isn't it? It's almost again back to front that the plows <laughs> take care of the airport, and then we'll come do the city. Yeah, like, and the fire, you know the fire I mean? department, like, same thing. Fire department was was uh, was was the airport fire department. They looked after fire department downtown until. The town itself got under, got feet under, under you know, like the feet established and all that. Then they went and and uh, and just moved back, and now the town is independent of the airport, completely independent. Like there's nothing 
at the airport don't they do share the water that's the only thing they do and i don't know what the storage i don't know if they got their own storage disposal or not I couldn't tell you, but I, I doubt it very much. I'd say they're still part of the town, right? You know, I mean, and not only that, but speaking of storage, the old the system out right now is still in place in the old town. Storage system is still in place, you know, and I don't know if it could be if it could be set up again, like somebody would come in and, and, uh, and uh, you know, set it up. You could build another town out there, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Build another airport, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, like I said, they, they, uh, when the jet started came online, uh, that's when the town airport started going downhill a little bit, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. So before we get to the jets, mm. um, sort of post World War Two was really the glory days for Gander, wasn't oh, it? Oh God! It's when. Yeah. That's when, as you said before, everything that came from London to New York, passed through Gander. You couldn't transverse the, the transatlantic without coming through Gander. No. It's so it, it, it was a hugely important, you know, militarily, it was very important through those war years, but that post-boom, post-war boom, it became incredibly important from a... Um, uh, for anyone wanting to uh, to cross the transatlantic. Yeah, and uh, as I said earlier about the, the cost of flying or the length of time flying. Uh, one of the things that uh, was set up in Gander was a uh, was was what we refer to as uplift, an uplift uh, 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 thing there where where uh, airplanes would would leave New York and they would fly up and up to Gander, and when they get in Gander, then all the food we put aboard the airplane. That's what we refer to as uplift, right? Okay, so. So like they put in their meals and their booze and all this old stuff. So when they took off, they would be watered and fed all the way to the destination. And they were, and they were really, really well fed back in those days. You know, people were still, you know, reminisce about the good old days when flying on an airplane was so much pleasure and all that old nonsense. Right. But, uh, so, I mean, that part of it too, I mean, like they had a big, I mean, like they had a lot of airplanes coming at nighttime. They had to come, they had all had to be, uh, uh, meals had to be prepared. I mean, it was, a, it was quite a business. They had a lot of people working for, for, for in that industry. You know, that was a British, uh, British group that came in and set up and set up that food, uh, uh, food distribution. And they had, and they kept that going right up until, well, up until the 70s, you know, and it kept, still kept it going, but not, not quite as large as it was back in the 50s, you know, and the full. So my understanding there is we're talking 13 to 15,000 aircraft a year carrying over a quarter of a million passengers. Yeah. Um, landed and took off out of Gander every year. I mean, it's they're, they're incredible figures. Yeah, and uh, you know, you want to and just look at all the, the gas that they like. They all refuel there, and 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 they, we had a big uh, uh, tankers would come in uh, to a, a, a heart little community outside of Gander, and they had big oil tanks there, and they would come in and fill them up, and and then then they had a special train that would go back and forth with fuel into into the airport, right? I mean, there's a lot of fuel. Uh, uh, they had to, get, and they had to be constant. Like, I mean, you couldn't say, "Oh, well, next week we get another load in." They had mm-hmm. to keep on going it because, I mean, you couldn't run out of fuel. Absolutely couldn't. No. You had to have a surplus. Had to have a surplus when uh, all at all times, you know. And uh, I mean, the infrastructure for that alone, as well, let alone the logistics, is. I mean, it's quite mind-boggling. Oh yeah, yeah, and they had to do maintenance as well. That was another thing they had here. 
like a guy would come in and, and he was, you know, they would just say uh, uh, PWA or Pan American Airlines would come in land and they would add a mechanical, you know, like anything, you know, niner or whatever, it got to be fixed. Otherwise, they'd have, have to sit there and wait for another airplane to come up from uh, from New York or somewhere else to, to pick up the stranded passengers. And in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, they never had those extra airplanes like they do today. They never had a, a surplus of yeah. airplanes that they were sitting back, you know, standbys. So they had to have yeah. maintenance people. So, I mean, they had a big maintenance staff in Gander. A lot of aircraft mechanics, what they refer to as AMEs. Uh, I mean, those guys, uh, and they trained a lot. I mean, in Gander, for example, even today, it's got one of the, one of the top uh, aircraft maintenance engineering uh, schools in, in Canada, right in Gander, right? They train them completely. I mean, every year they graduate, they, when the class graduate, before they get out to the door, they got jobs. Like they're, they're just like you know, sports players. Like they almost have drafts. So see, you know, they go in, they can pick the best students and all this whole nonsense. They even got today. So they, even the maintenance. I mean, we've had airplanes that come in and uh, if you're ever on our website, there you go in and you see where you see an airplane that ran off the runway after its landing and then went into a ditch and broke itself up pretty good. And they, they fixed that airplane, fixed it up and flew it out. You know, that's the kind of maintenance that was there. So that, that's the kind of people, you know, like, and then you had, then you had, uh, 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 when those guys flew across the Atlantic, they had to, you, weather was the most important thing because you, you want to stay away from, uh, in turbulent weather and you want to stay away from from winds or headwinds i should say is the best way to describe it so you wanted to you wanted to uh, avoid that so then you had to have good net people you had to have people that knew that that, that could forecast the winds good so when they come in and then they had operation staff located in gander and those are those guys uh, flight plan the aircraft you know and and they had to get their weather briefings and then when the pilots came in, they had to brief their pilots and, you know, this is what you're going to encounter in your crossing. It's not like today where you just go and plug in your internet and Google's and mm. <laughs> give you the weather. Mm. And, you know, and, yeah. and they became experts. And in fact, the weather office today is still one of the top weather offices in Canada. You know, it, it does it does forecasting right, right to this day, you know. I mean, they tried to close it down a few years ago. They had it closed down for a year or two and finally they had, they had to open it up again, you know. And uh, they, they, these are the expertise, you know, uh, that, that were developed through the aviation thing. And one of the, of course, then we're not talking about air traffic control. It's a completely different picture, another story in itself. I mean, what, what, they, what we've done in Gander, you know, for, for years, you know, so. So in, in that period, that early 50s and through the 50s, what sort of planes were making those crossings? What was, I'm sorry, what was... What what's a, what, what planes, what, what sort of planes uh, were the, making that? The, uh, uh, the start off, uh, the, the most popular airplanes when I first started was the DC-4, and and uh, I'm sorry, the D, uh, DC-4, and then the DC-6s came along, and then from there, they went from the DC-7s and the and the Lockheed Constellations. And then the Stratocruisers came, came on after that, and then they stayed, and that stayed pretty constant right up until the first jet came in it was a, it was a boac comet you know i mean uh, that was the first jet landing in 1958 i think that was you know but uh you know the, the most of the airplanes were like i said decent i have the best ones that i can remember because i've got at the eighth and we're we're in the dc-7s and the and the, and the silver constellations and 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 the Stratocruiser started flying. That's when I'd be up looking at the airplanes landing and taking off and 
and every now and then you get a you get a you knew a neighbor that was a air traffic controller you get a visit to the control tower and that was another thing you know so <laughs> you know that was another treat growing up it's so I've, I've sort of agonized a little bit over this one was um when was actually the zenith do you think of the aviation culture was it 1959 when Gander opened its international departure lounge uh, or I should say the Queen actually opened it for you or yeah. was it 1958 when Frank Sinatra le- released the album Come Fly With Me? <laughs> he got a lot of crap over that because uh, because he used a TWA airplane in the background and, and, and Frank Sinatra <laughs> didn't like it because him and and Howard Hughes didn't, didn't agree with each other. About it. <laughs> but, uh, so to say, well, what was the defining years? Fifty-eight and fifty. Yeah, I said, yeah, fifty. I mean, fifty. Nineteen fifty-eight, fifty-nine. That seems to me to be the zenith yeah, around uh, there. That, that was the era. That's when things started to change. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it was a. There was a, a year or two uh, uh, after fifty-nine, sixty. When when things even the even the jets had to come in and land because they weren't they 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 didn't uh, they didn't build the uh, build them long range enough you know first the small jets for first small seven or sevens I should say and then uh, after uh, then they started to uh, I would say Gander started disappearing in 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 about sixty seven sixty six sixty seven you know. So. But I doubt that was the era when when it really changed. You know, with the new terminal, it really really did it. I mean, there were there were things were starting to change. That's basically uh, the um the the new terminal minor sanding was built because of because of the fact that you had so much volume of of traffic coming through um, through the airport, and it was sort of one of those first impressions. Um, uh, that wasn't so good with the quality of the, air, of the quality of the lounge and the airport that was there previously. That they really went to town with um, with the new international lounge, didn't they? It's yeah. to me looking at it. I mean, it's something between sort of the you know the man from Uncle meets James Bond sort of thing, isn't it? I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It is. Yeah. It is very spectacular. Well. Um... It's like everything else, you know, like the plan that you got all of a sudden a good idea. Before you can get a good idea moving, it's going to take it two or three years, right? Before you can get it finished, completed. When they decided to build a new terminal, it was back when the, in right in the heyday, 55 or 56, mm-hmm. when they decided they're going to build, you know, like we should build a new terminal. Now, the first question that came up, where are we going to build it? You know, like where can we build it? And so they, so they said, okay, this would be the good location, this present day location, this which would... Now, there's a situation they got. Before we can build it, we got a bunch of people living there. We got to move them out, you see? Mm. So then they had to take that town, take the people and move them into a town that was being built. So like there's a time in all involved in that. So it was a slow, slow process getting going. So finally, they finally got the people out where they could start construction. And by the time they got it completed and done, it was 1959. By this time, she started to tip. Everything started to tip yeah. away. So like I said, it was a good idea in 55. But it took them four years to get to where it was. <laughs> and by that time, it was too late, right? And, of course, the yeah. purpose of it being was to, uh, uh, the story goes, that uh, uh, somebody in Ottawa decided that there was a lot of people going to Gander. That was, that was their first and only impression of Canada that they're going to get. So let's not have them going through a, a, a old World War II hangar. That we had renovated into a, into a you know to a terminal, so that's that was the reason for it. In fact, it was 
at that time, Gander Terminal, when it was built, was the biggest terminal in in, uh, in Canada. You know, bigger than, than the, and then and then of course now Gander added this new terminal. Now they're committed; they had to build other terminals in Canada too. So then they started, you know, changing around. You know, you know. but that's I mean that the terminal that was built. I mean, it's it's definitely you, you got to have a look at it because it's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, it's you know mosaic floors. Um, you know. Um, Herman Miller furniture. Um, you know, there's that seventy-two foot um, mural. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a you know, it is an unbelievable um, piece of art, isn't it? The, the whole terminal is just it's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like I was I was in high school when 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 they opened up the terminal, and and that was at that time I was a sixteen-year-old guy, and and you know, like that was a place where we used to go to hang out and. There's never ever any, like uh, it was always open. You know, I mean, but they didn't. Young people were getting used to get rowdy from time to time, and and uh, and uh, the airport attendant would come over and kick you out and drive you home or something. But anyway, uh, one of the biggest things when we go to the terminal would be sit down, four or five of us teenagers discussing modern art. <laughs> <laughs> And, and our likes and dislikes about the, about the painting. So I, like I said, that was one of the most you think. I mean, like 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 you were talking about the nice floors and the nice furniture they had there. You know, the modernistic stuff. And yeah. The, the, the biggest thing that, that got me personally used to be that 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 uh, artwork. And and, and I, I tell you, I wasn't really overly enthused with it. You know, like I didn't really think it was very nice, but. My father, in particular, I mean, he thought that he thought it was hateful. Like he got so he used to get so upset building a brand new terminal and put up that monstrosity. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, I can understand that a little bit. It's, it, <laughs> it's a bit different. Sort of grow, it, it grew on us, right? And then you could see stuff in the oh, look, look, he's noticing over there, you know. And it, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, that was what the, the biggest thing that I that I seen there. And then I got to work there, of course. That was the best one of all. I mean, now all of a sudden, you know, like a few years after that, wow, well, I started working and the, and I, the, the control center that I worked in was was right in the right in the main lounge, right? You know, so and uh, you got yeah. to be in there every what, single day. What was your thoughts on the um, the birds of welcome then? The, um, yeah, the seven I know. Bronze. Uh, yeah, we, we, it was always a, it was always like you always on, uh, like we refer to as a hand roll. You know, once you go by, you, you, you sort of put your hand across. You know, like you're going by, you know, smooth it down as you're going by. But uh, no, I was like I said, uh, as a, well, I, you know, 16 years old. I mean, you you haven't got any, you don't have much appreciation for for <laughs> for those <laughs> things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but after after I got to work right now, like you know, like, I I I think they're really beautiful, you know, right now. You know, like the whole, you know, I, I go back all the time. Like every now and then I I get out on the main in the main area and, and I still still can't uh, can't go. And they're opening that by the way, it's the this spring they're going to uh, open it to the public. You'll be able, yeah, okay. able to walk right into it, yeah. Yeah, well, they said it was a it was a, a museum piece there. Nobody's allowed to get in and yeah. visit. You know, the only piece that you could get, the only people that could get in to visit were people that were traveling. You know, and mm -hmm. and they're far and few between now. You know, the international people coming through that side. So they started realizing that that this is a tourist attraction. So because yeah. they're yeah. getting so much, uh, uh, you know, accolades and you know that kind of stuff, right? So, but I mean, it was the it was the place to be seen, wasn't it? Uh, in its day and 
I mean, the list of, I mean, well, obviously, uh, you know, the list of people that, you know, move through that um, that lounge is the, the, the who's who, given that anyone who travelled from one side of the world to the other essentially well, they had to come through Gander, but JFK, Elizabeth Taylor, Jackie O, Frank Sinatra, uh, Richard Burton, Winston Churchill, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Elvis, Bob Hope, Humphrey Bogart. I mean, you know, even what the Beatles, that was the technically was the first stop on their uh, their first North American tour was Gander, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. The only guy I, I, so, I, I remember growing up, you know, I, I remember growing up in, in, uh, and you go to school and, and, uh, and of course, a lot of the kids that I went to school with, their parents worked at the airport, you know, and, uh, and someone say, you know, like, guess who's dad seen last night at the airport? I'm like, I don't know. Who is that? And Frank Sinatra. Well, yeah, I don't like him. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't like his songs at all. And, and, yeah. Anybody else up there? Yeah. No, I, and but I, I and, and you say and, we, and that was one of the things that when we were kids we always that was a Sunday afternoon uh, we, we always go to the airport you go always up to the terminal right and look around looking for movie stars right and I can never we because at that time I was I was right into uh, cowboy uh, uh, into cowboy and, I, and I, looking for John Wayne were you <laughs> no I never ever seen John Wayne I, I uh, side story about John Wayne that's not told very much about he was he came in there and, and that was just so that was in the in the early 60s I think that was in 63 64 something like that he come through and he was in the, he was in the big Denver lounge having a having a drink and one of the locals came in and he was well under the under the weather himself right and he got in and he spied John Wayne and he figured John Wayne wasn't such a tough guy and he wanted he wanted to have it out with him right there on the spot, right? A real good old cologne fight, you know. But anyway, he got pulled away pretty quickly. He didn't he didn't <laughs> he didn't get tangled up with him or not. But the only guy that I've ever seen up there that really a celebrity that uh, now like I said, when I worked there, you know, uh, you'd be always on the lookout for for anybody that was moving around. And word always came down from from control center to control center. Guess who was on this place? Got a guy from in the Ghana. Guess who's on? Guess who's on board the airplane, right? So anyway, uh, uh, this day, uh, uh, Hugh Hefner was coming in on Playboy DC nine, right? <laughs> oh boy, got to see that, right? So anyway, he came in and, uh, and boy, he had this Miss Miss Playmate, right, was on his arm, right? Barbie Benton, oh man. I followed him around terminal for a bus, just chasing. Right? I was working. I was on my coffee break, so I went down and I just walked. You know, but uh, that was the only guy that I think I've ever seen. Now I've seen. Well, you might call him. I, I don't call him important. But a lot of politicians would come through. You see the politicians. I, I didn't get too excited about politicians. Like uh, Gorbachev used to come through, and and uh, the one that I used to see a lot was Kosygin. Now, Kosygin, he was the uh, a foreign minister of uh, United Nations ambassador for uh, for the Soviets, and uh, he uh, he used to come in and uh, he'd be he'd go out in the garden. He had a damn nice garden out there. You go, he would walk around the garden all the time. You see him because we would just look out to the window and the control center, look right down the garden, and he'd be strolling around like. You know, like there wasn't, you never got too much publicity, you know, like uh, some people, some mm. news good guy would know about it and come and try to take a picture of him, but you know, but uh, I never got to see too many people. Like I said, I wasn't, I was interested in, 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 in Hugh Hefner and he's, and, and the girls that were hanging around. And <laughs> <laughs> so, I did spot her O'Malley one time. He owned the Brooklyn, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers and, and he came in and, uh, and I was a Dodger fan. So I, 
I went down, I had a look at him and he was in and he was buying, he was in the gift shop and he was buying up, he was buying up those expensive dishes. Man, he must have bought about $500 worth. He, he was some sort of a Nourish linen china. And yeah, oh, right. You ever see this? It's almost like shell, like it's like eggshell, it's that thin, right? And he, he went in, he must have seen it there. And he, you know, and he, and he, but was, he bought it, but he had a pile on the counter. I couldn't believe it, right? And he was buying up all this stuff, right? Anyway, I've never seen so much, you know, dishes and all this before being sold in the gift shop as this guy did, you know? So. It seems like everyone, um, like when you read about those who work at uh, Gander Airport, that you know everyone's got a story and everyone's got a connection to sort of the rich and famous, don't they? Because oh, yeah. I mean, just so many people went through. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people. Uh, um, uh, I tell you now, the, the, the one that I only found out about there about four or five years ago was uh, Gene Autry. Now uh, you're, you're too young to know about Gene Autry, but uh, Jim, Gene Autry was a big movie star, cowboy movie star back in the '40s. And uh, he was the guy that uh, that sang uh, that uh, uh, was famous for Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. And he's the guy that sung that song, right? Okay. Anyway, yeah, yeah, cowboy right. hero, right? You know. And uh, he was uh, he used to fly. He was flying uh, tankers uh, for uh, for the military, USAF, and he was and they were uh, transporting fuel from North America down to North Africa, and and. and uh, he used to come through Gander, and he got stuck in Gander on a, on a weather situation. Somebody found out about it and invited him down to his house. And anyway, uh, he got he got to be real good friends with with people there in Gander. And, and every time he come in, he'd go down for for a meal, right? You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. So there, there's a there's scattered there's a scattered like that, you know, and 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 particularly with the staff at the airport working, you know, they got to know the staff and they come in same guy, you know, like John Travolta, he, he come I don't know lately, what he's been doing lately, but he used to be coming through pretty regularly, three or four times a year on this, on his airplane, right, fly his own airplane, a few others too that I heard the guys talk about. But I don't expect, yeah, right. I, I'm not a, I, I, I wasn't well, big into that stuff. So it's um. Oh, I mean, it's just, I don't know, I find it all very fascinating. Um, <laughs> Jack, you know, it's it, it's just, as I said, I mean, I started um, it started by with the with our podcast talking about, you know, we see the world being driven by, you know, five drivers. And it's just all the stories that you're talking about are, are just revolve around those five drivers, especially, obviously, uh, you know, technology is obviously a big one that underpins, you know, everything that you're talking about and, <clears throat> how we see population as well you know the, the 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 human spirit to overcome and solve problems and um you know work together and 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 create solutions you, you know the ingeniousness of mankind is you know can i don't think can ever be underestimated um and you know what's been achieved um uh, you know over there you, you it's just well, a lot of what's been achieved has been been in reaction to you know the situations that have been thrown at you, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's right. And, and like I said, one of the biggest reasons why things work is cooperation. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, you got a problem and you're willing to work with the other person between the two of you. You can work out that problem, or you can come mm. up with a solution. I shouldn't say work it out to 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 what you want it to work out, but you can work it out where 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 it's going to satisfy both parties. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say I'd suggest to you, Jack, that you you should seriously think about starting a podcast, doing this. Yeah, but I only got one. I only got one story. Just told it, told it to you. 
I don't know if you got for one podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nah. If you if you sat down with your mate, you do heaps of them. You do heaps yeah. of them. You know, and the different yeah. things, the the change in aviation, the the change in the planes, the change in technology yeah. that you use. There's heaps of stuff you could do. I mean, yeah. to record the you know, you could go into the do a you could you could do a whole podcast on, you know, one of the you know, the plane crashes or, you know, all sorts of stuff, you know. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose, yeah. Uh, but it, it takes a lot. I'm too old for that now. Like, I'm pushing 80, you know. I mean, you, as, you know, like, I don't have a, you know, I haven't got the energy that I used to have. I mean, I got the ideas, but not, <laughs> but I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, so that's really the great thing about the podcast is you just sit down with a mate and put a recorder in front of you and record and off you go. You're done. <laughs> you don't have to. I've got to say, Jack, there's a, there's a lot we can learn from um, Gander Aviation History and I'd like to congratulate you on the establishment of the Gander uh, Airport Historical Society that helps well, is helping to um, uh, immortalise the Gander's you know historical significance. So um, you know from my point of view, there's a lot that we can take out of the Gander story um, and certainly the illustrations of the five drivers and the importance of you know the locational advantage of property and 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 how those drivers interact is is really important for us to understand. So I just wanted to say, you know, with regards to the Gander International, uh, sorry, the Gander um, Airport Historical Society, you know, where can people get more information? What's the what's the address there? Um, okay, Jack? well, uh, the, the one word spelled out: Gander Airport Historical Society dot org o r g, and uh, and I think pretty good, uh, like like. Uh, if you don't know the real name for it or something like that, just try to Google it because we're pretty, we're pretty, uh, 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 we're pretty known, well known on Google. Not because we're so important, but the fact that uh, the name is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> easy to find. You've also got a uh, you've got a Gander Twitter handle, haven't you? Yeah. Okay. It's capital at capital G A H S Y Q X. And I'll put those uh, links in the show notes to make it easy for anyone to uh, to get hold of you. Uh, Jack, I've got to say thanks a lot for joining me today. It's been a very interesting discussion. Um, we've covered a lot of turf, and uh, it's certainly, you know, the 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 importance of Gander and uh, uh, the the role that's played in aviation and the development of mankind and our history is is really quite amazing. So, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for joining me. Well, you're quite welcome. And, and this was a, a real pleasure just to sit down and chat with you. Oh, it's been a fair bit of fun. So, of course, we'd love to help you in your property journey. So feel free to get in contact with us with your stories or queries. Uh, if you'd like some help, and don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave us a rating review at Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. I've been your host, Jeremy Cownan, and until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. History and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Jeremy Cowan and Cowan & Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services, Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.